Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Max Rinpoche. Chapter 1 continued. Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche instructed me, tell these stories to your students, make a book, but tell the stories in the language of the West so that people will enjoy them and understand them. These are not just stories from the past. They are stories for practitioners everywhere in all times. With regard to telling these stories in the language of the West, I should make reference to the milieu of the West vis-à-vis -vis current views and mores. From this perspective, it is important to understand that the references to pederasty and homosexuality in monasteries do not represent homophobia on the part of Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche or Chimi Rigsin Rinpoche. Chimi Rigsin Rinpoche had gay students and both he and Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche were entirely open-minded. Two of our gay ordained students accompanied Kandor Chen and myself to visit Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche. The nature of their relationship was evident to him and they were warmly received. He was more interested in the seriousness of meditation practice than romantic orientation. And he based his view of people solely on that criterion. He said, every style of perception is utilised by Vajrayana to realise the non-dual state. Vajrayana is the method by which everything is accomplished through all possible means. The criticisms with regard to homosexuality were based on the fact that monastics vow to be celibate. Many lamas have told me that monastic status is seen as valuable by Tibetans. Many Tibetans apparently become monks purely for the social standing it gives them and live as hypocrites in respect of sexuality and renunciation. Interestingly, Chimi Rigsin Rinpoche and Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche made no equivalent jests regarding nuns. The two lamas told me that this was because the lowly social status of nuns determined that all who took nuns' vows were entirely serious about their religious lives. They said that most nunneries were small and populated by sincere practitioners who were often possessed of significant spiritual experience. Another point that, is, that should be borne in mind is that although there was a great deal of criticism of monasteries and monastics, every Lama with whom I studied had a profound respect for the monastic order established by Shakyamuni Buddha. They all knew exemplary monastics. And the main reason the criticisms exist can be attributed to the fact that monasticism represents the dominant spiritual culture of Tibet. It is hardly surprising, therefore, that it comes under scrutiny. Other than the Tibetan humour concerning monastic perversion, which I have transcribed verbatim, I have employed the images of the Himalayan regions that linger in my mind.
also included are fragments from the kaleidoscope of all the images I've ever known in movies, literature, poetry, prose, songs, arias, and in the momentary arising of inspiration that continually floods from the lays themselves. The Kampa and Golok Lamas I've met in the United States have invariably commented on the similarity they see between the culture of Kam and Golok and the culture of the Old West. Once, when invited to lunch with Tuku Tubden Rinpoche, he noticed the western boots beneath my white shamtab. His eyes lit up and he whispered conspiratorially, I have like this. He then reached up onto a shelf and brought down a box emblazoned with the name Tony Lama. He opened the box and pulled out the cherished boots. I inspected them and he inspected mine. Then he showed his Stetson hat. Then he brought out a photograph of himself riding a bull. It was a put your head through the hole in the picture shot, but it was clear that he'd have been on a real bull if he'd had the chance. Some years later, Kandrad Chen and I sat with a group of our students watching a Golok rodeo with Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche and Jomo Sampal Dechen. Apart from Tibetan folk music, the scene was pretty much what we'd witnessed in Montana, but with far fewer safety precautions. The riders shot at targets set up in front of the bleachers where the audience sat. Not such a problem, perhaps, if the riders had been astride their saddles, but these shots were taken from beneath the bellies of the horses. This required the riders to be upside down. Anyone in the bleachers could have caught a stray bullet, but those riders hit the target every time. When seen in public, in Boda as elsewhere, I always wear a western hat and often western boots, and these are always greeted with delight by Tibetans from Kham and Golok. It's been heartwarming when such fine people accost me in Boda saying, Nakpa, Yapodu. They then point at the hat and boots and say the same, Yapodu. Now all our students who have the chutzpa don western hats and boots on pilgrimage to Boda. It's clear that everyone from Kam and Golok loves to see it as much as we love to see their tubas and long braided hair. This has become its own story and now you can see western hats for sale in Boda. Word obviously got round that this is what people are wearing. It's a communication like language and that style of communication is important to the way this book is written. My wife, Kandrad Chen and I enjoy the Old West, so some of the dialogue reflects that idiom. I remain an Englishman, however, so these Golok Lamas and brigands are also given to whimsicality of phraseology. 
Although the wisdom lays related to me by Rinpoche are accompanied by commentaries in the form of discussions, they don't set out to provide definitive meanings. As Rinpoche points out in one of the following discussions, the meaning I find is not better than the one you find. Maybe there are many meanings, and maybe none of them match Paltrell's mind. The important matter is method, skillful means. In the early stages of our relationship, Rinpoche was stern and formal, and the story came first with little or no introduction. Then, as time went on, Rinpoche became increasingly convivial and anecdotal, often telling multiple stories. Towards the end, the stories and conversation became utterly interwoven. It's a clichéd observation on my, on my part, but my training was an organic process, and it grew as it grew. I don't think Rinpoche had any fixed plan when he started relating these wisdom lays, apart from inciting in me an experiential grasp of principle and function. He was to give me transmission of Dzogchen, and for that to be possible, I had to have a mind sufficiently clear of useless philosophical baggage. Rinpoche obviously enjoyed unfurling these wisdom lays, but he never recounted them just for the sake of telling a story. As our time together proceeded, I became increasingly attuned to seeing the motivation of the inhabitants of each account, and as my perception cleared, so they became increasingly vital and inspiring. These wisdom lays have been retold countless times, so there'll be many different versions available. Rinpoche sometimes gave me alternative versions that he knew, and it was clear that he didn't ascribe greater veracity to any one particular version. It would seem that these variations acquire different slants according to the narrator. They're told to emphasise whatever point a Lama might be making in particular instances and times. In turn, these slants evolved further slants until occasionally the stories evolved radically contrasting presentations. This oral tradition is gloriously open to human process. It suggests history as being whatever it needs to be at any one time in order to be of real value to people. I trust that those who know other versions of these lays will not be offended or irritated by what I've presented here. There's room in the world for entirely disparate renditions. I hope that other practitioners will also write these lays in their own styles. There are as many fashions of telling wisdom lays as there are tellers. 
and as many meanings to be found within these lays as there are people to benefit from them. To anyone who's moved to write their own versions, good luck y'all. Chapter 2 The Tiger Who Ate Me From The Inside Out The year was 75, I was 23 and ready to head for the hills. I'd made the weighty decision to quit the direction I'd taken five years earlier on the basis of well-reasoned considerations. The art school situation had changed and it was no longer possible to become an art school lecturer directly on completion of a master's degree. Becoming a working artist first was the new requirement. That seemed like lunacy to me. Why launch into a career as an artist with the plan to jettison it to gain employment as an art school lecturer? What sort of enthusiasm would there be in embarking on a temporary career with all the effort that such an undertaking would require? You'd have to be obsessed with the idea or it would be a non-starter. In future, the only people who'd become art school lecturers would be people who previously never considered it. Ridiculous. I could have followed another route. Yes, some were suggested, but pondering those alternatives left the sour aftertaste of compromise. I wasn't good at compromise unless it was for the sake of friends or colleagues. I wasn't that desperate either. There were more important things in life than securing a career at any cost. That's the history. Cryptic, I know, but that's what galvanised me. That's what sent me to the Himalayas. Lead on, Carruthers. I'd initially planned to wait till I retired to head east, but indeed, I took early retirement. Best decision I ever made. Now we've got that out of the way, I should explain that I wasn't the callow youth that some young people are today at the age of 23. Far from it. I spoke my mind, I led my own life. I wasn't arrogant in the conventional sense because I liked people and I liked people to be happy but I never took any nonsense. I tended to give as good as I got, especially with self-appointed autocrats, petty despots, demagogues and tinsel town tyrants. I wasn't exactly a rebel. I just liked to see fair play and mutual respect. I had no habit of kicking against the traces for its own sake but neither was I a natural-born conformist. The reason I'm explaining this is because there may be some people who find my relationship with Rinpoche a little bewildering. To those unfamiliar with Vajrayana, I risk coming across as some sort of gaga devotee. That was, and is, distinctly not the case. I'd seen plenty of bliss kids during the 60s and they never liked me that much. I was too cynical for them 
and they were too etheric for me. Their jargon was as foreign to me as their curiously adopted West Coast American accents. I could never quite understand why they expected me to believe they'd always talked like that when they were English-born and brought up in the home counties. It's not that I never used the word hassle, it's a good descriptive word, but I could never quite see the value of adopting hippie patois wholesale. Yes, I'd done the whole brown rice, tofu and lentils thing, but although some elements of whole food remain in my diet, I prefer Italian cuisine. As for Ruibosch tea, give me a break, show me the nearest drain. There were certainly things about my native culture that I didn't like. But I had no desire to disparage everything about being English. I had no desire to become a born-again Tibetan. I loved the Tibetans' culture and admired the Tibetans as people. But as a bluesman, I could never become a black American. And as a Buddhist, I could never become a Tibetan. I met people for whom becoming Tibetan was the answer. And I had no objection to that at all. I always thought that Tibetan costume was rather fine, especially that of the Golok brigands. But somehow I couldn't see what was intrinsically better about it than my beloved Levi Strauss 501 Serge Denim trousers. I wear robes when I teach because that's the instruction I received from my lamas. When I'm not teaching or representing the tradition, however, I wear what I have always worn. Levi's, collarless shirt, an early 1900s waistcoat and western boots. I've never been attached to mindless obedience to anything. I never towed the hippie party line or its conventional alternatives. I see rules as being subject to personal choice and common sense. I don't obey speed limits. I simply drive carefully. Sometimes this means driving slower than allowed in streets where children may be playing. Politically, I'm an anarchist. Always was, always will be. Whichever way you vote, it's a government gets elected. Laws are for people who cannot govern themselves and for whom freedom and responsibility are alien. The reason not to steal or murder is not that to do so leads to punishment. If a person is kind and seeks the happiness and well-being of others as a natural response to being alive, then ethics and morality will be intrinsic. You simply have to like people, animals and the whole slew of limitless phenomena. The next thing I'd like to explain is that Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche had no desire to have power over me. He didn't want me to do anything I didn't particularly want to do. 
He didn't even want me visiting him, let alone his having to take personal responsibility for teaching me. If it hadn't been for the letter I carried from Kyabje Dujam Rumshe, he'd have turned me away. Dujam Rumshe had written a letter of introduction which requested him to take me under his wing. I'll tell the story of how I delivered that letter later. It may cause some amusement. First, however, let me describe the Lama who came to mean more to me than life or death. Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche was beyond anything I'd ever known. He was kind, extremely kind, but in a manner that was initially incomprehensible. He was also majestically, if not vividly, ruthless. Somehow I knew he liked me, but whether he liked me as a father might like his son, or as a tiger might like a gazelle, was not easy to distinguish. He was dazzlingly wild, magnificently ferocious, and he knew the answer to the nature of existence. He read it like a book. He read it in everything he saw, heard, tasted, or otherwise sensated. At the outset of my training, being able to relax in his company was a fleeting experience. I suppose I must say that, apart from Dujam Rinpoche and Dilgo Kientse Rinpoche, I'd never really experienced devotion for anyone before. <laughs>